0: that wasn't composed to pat ourselves on the back it wasn't to congratulate ourselves for being in the moment we are but it is to celebrate it is to celebrate the kindness and the mercy and the glory of God that we might be in this moment together we're not pretending that we're perfect but we give thanks for what he's been able to do in our midst through us and in spite of us and all sorts of other things because where we are today, however you might characterize it, we ought to be grateful because it's not a given that we would find ourselves in this moment, that we would be able to tell that story and to celebrate God's kindness to us. It's not inevitable, it wasn't a given. Things could be much different. And if I could set that a little bit in context, there was a, that's a book that's about to be released if it isn't out already, it's called The Dechurching of America, or the de, what is it? The Great Dechurching in which they speak to the way, b- studying a bunch of trends, a bunch of data, it's a you know, book full of source material and graphs and things like that, and talking about why is the church in many respects and in many places, not everywhere, but in a lot of spikes in America, why is it declining? And you can probably guess some of the things that show up early in the book, the the way in which, in many places, the church has sort of sold its birthright for a pottage of political influence, or for the way the church has responded in unserious ways to harm and abuse within its bodies, or the ways in which perhaps the church has decided not to follow along certain cultural trends or to do so. All those things show up, but the actual argument of the book as I have read reviews about it, it, is not about those things. Those are not the primary reasons why the church in many places has declined. It's actually come down to something even more fundamental. And Jake Metter kind of spoke to that question when he said this, the defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply is not set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment As defined by professional and financial success, such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages the professional prospects of one's children. Anybody felt that pressure? A lot of people write about the way in which modern life just doesn't fit with who we are anymore. We've created a culture in which we are no longer able to inhabit meaningfully. Well, that's the argument of the book. The way modern culture operates, it really is at cross-purposes with what it means to be a member of his body, to believe in those things and to believe in one another and to believe that we're here for somebody else's sake. And so Matter goes on to say this, the problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. It's not a given that we should be able to celebrate God's kindness to us. But we need to think well about what is the shape of grace. What you just saw is, I would say, the shape we're in. The title of the sermon is The Shape of Grace. You just saw a snapshot of what the shape we're in, but now I'd like to take it in another meaning and ask, what is the shape that grace always ought to take in us both as it stands now and for the the next 100 years that that roof now stands over us. What shape must grace take in us? And we're going to take our mark from the earliest moments of the earliest church in Acts chapter 2. And I think we're going to see that shape that grace takes both then and always and hopefully here too in three ways. In our public life, in our common life, and in our vital life. Don't worry, I'll define it. Our public life, our common life, and our vital life. We want to consider that to refresh our memories and to set the vision for the rest of our time together. Would you stand? We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, and then also refresh our memory from something we heard in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He can have a seat. I'll do a little inside baseball with you here. I wrote this sermon in one order, and then I thought, you know what? We probably ought to tell this sermon in reverse order. We're going to take it from the bottom and work our way to the top. But what we want to do here is remind ourselves of this. This is Acts chapter 2. The Spirit has just ascended. The Spirit has persuaded many in the teaching and in the preaching, the sermonic impromptu speech of uh, the Apostle Peter to be convicted of their sin and of hearing that the promise of God is being fulfilled in who Jesus is, the one who is dead and now has him alive and has just ascended to heaven. That's the story. That's the gospel. That's what's just happened. And what happens? Boom, 3,000 of them. Say, we're in, count me in, I'm in. And it says, great grace was upon them. What is the shape that grace takes upon a community? The first dimension that I think we want to talk about is the way in which grace shapes a public life. And the reason I'm starting there is because many times we don't get that far in our thinking or we think it really doesn't apply He's come. He's good. We love each other. We've heard that. We believe we're in love with him, and he is in love with us. And then, full we'll stop. But the the shape that grace always will take will always reach into our public lives. And you see that spoken of there in the last two verses of chapter of, of last two cha- verses of chapter two. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. More on that later. Praising God, and having favor. With all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It will not be long before that church, fledgling as it is, incoherent, trying to figure it out, is gonna get whipsawed. People are gonna start to feel threatened by their existence, their presence, their spread. Persecution will arise. But on this day, really in this moment, People looked at them kind of with the, "What are you?" But you're odd, but there's something about you. You seem to be a people where love is more important to you than power, where one another is more important to one another than something else. And that influence, that they took note. They regarded them with a certain curiosity, but also a certain kind of respect. They may not have gotten them, they certainly may not have fallen in with them, but what is it about them? How the early church began to make an impact in that world, in which everybody on the outside looking in, it says in Acts chapter 2, they looked upon them with favor. There's an anonymous ancient document called the Letter to Diognetus. We don't know who wrote it, He, he, he goes by the name Mathetes, which is just the Greek word for disciple. And it was written in the 2nd century, and ostensibly it was written to a high-ranking official in the Roman Empire. And in that letter, in that treatise, he gets into the nitty-gritty about why the church had taken hold, why people looked with both favor and regard on who they were. And you hear him say to this person, lost now to antiquity. There is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor all under the, all the disabilities of aliens. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. A blessing is their abu- answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do receive, the punishment of malefactors. But even then, they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They're attacked by the Jews as aliens. They're persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. They were hated by many. They were noted by many others to the extent that they saw them with favor, even if they didn't understand them. They didn't believe what they did, but they believed that they were governed by love and by beliefs that even though they could not hold them, they also could not dismiss them. The grace, grace of God will take shape in a people in their public life by how they are regarded by those who are outside. Ten years ago in Ethiopia, the country is on the brink of a civil war. And the Coptic church, the Coptic Christian church in Ethiopia and in Egypt were suddenly harangued by a concerted, coordinated effort by Islamic terrorists. They burned churches. They firebombed church communities. And what would happen in a moment like that? And and those who were in the government and those in the wider community, they were wondering, how is the church going to respond now that they are the targeted recipient of this kind of terror? Would they retaliate? The Coptic Archbishop of London, I read in an essay this week, he, he put it this way. No communication went out from the patriarchate of the diocese saying, don't retaliate. It was just Christians in Egypt, excuse me, Egypt, just Christians in Egypt doing what the Christians in Egypt do. And by not retaliating, they took the wind out of that initiative. By the admission of many, including political analysts and non-Christians at every level, that's what protected the community. Grace shapes a community... And it has an impact on public life, and people take notice. Our brethren, five hours to the south of us in Charleston, you know what happened in 2015. You know about the white supremacist that went in as a visitor in a Bible study, and before he was done, he had killed nine parishioners. And in the, the bail hearing of that young man, there were members of that community Who came forward to give testimony one of them was named Nadine Collier whose 70 year old mother had been killed and she said you took something very precious away from me you hurt me you hurt a lot of people but if God forgives you I forgive you a brother of another woman who died Cynthia Graham heard he said this having her in church that night as Bible study taught me about the Lord If we had to lose our sister, losing her in church was the right place. She was in the company of God. She was trying to help somebody. She was not a victim. She was a Christian. And statements like that would come out, and you can understand why some people would go, wait a minute. Too soon, man. What about justice? And those are reasonable questions, and any of us might ask them. But those voices who said those things in the wake of their sorrow and their tragedy, they were misunderstood. Were they saying that they didn't believe in justice? Of course not. If anything, they were incarnating what Tim Keller wrote in his book on forgiveness. Forgiveness is the precondition for justice. Because without it, without even a category for it, it is a fine line between justice and revenge. There, the way grace had shaped them, shaped their witness to a public life. And even if people did not subscribe to the ideas that they believed in, they still thought, what is it about you? What is it that you get that I don't get that would cause you to say those kinds of things in the wake of that kind of moment? Grace shapes a people in a public life God forbid, this body ever finds itself in the situation that the Coptic Christians in Egypt or our Charlestonian friends in an Amian church ten years ago will ever find. But may the God of the gospel in Jesus prepare us to be able to respond in ways whatever the circumstance might be that we might not be understood but also regarded. You might think that was then but this is now and Friends, the marks of that church in that moment is meant to be the mark of any church in any moment. It's to have that shaping in our public life. And what you just saw in the video demonstrates just a sampling of the way in which we have regard in the eyes and ideas of many people in our community, many of whom don't even share what we wouldn't, wouldn't dare darken the doorstep of this room on a Sunday morning. But they have regard and they have respect, because grace has shaped this community in that way, and may it continue to do so, such that those who are on the outside looking in will have that sense of favor, but perhaps also wonder, what about you? Because as you heard there in verse 47, they had favor in the eyes of all the people, but some of them, some of them thought that that love and that respect had a certain credibility about this Jesus of whom they spoke and they themselves became persuaded. Grace shapes a community in the way others look with favor, but it also becomes its own persuasive case for the one in whose name we come. Truth is not an idea. Remember, truth is a person. And when they see that and the way we respond to this community, by the Spirit, it's compelling. Grace shapes a community in that way. Why? Because of the second dimension in which grace shapes a community. Grace shapes a public life, but only first because that grace has shaped the common life of a community like this, a family. What do I mean? You you know this story. What did they do? How were they here? What happened to them? when it speaks there early about the way grace shaped a community, it says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They got together. Diverse bunch, rich men north of Richmond and everybody south of there. Thrown together of all shapes and sizes, all stripes, Jew and Gentile, a variety of socioeconomic places. Different colors, different languages, thrown together. And they committed themselves to it. This was not just a, oh good, I'm saved, let's go home. They were thrown together. Jesus gave us himself, but when he gave us himself, he gave us to each other. He formed a body. He formed a family. And they started to believe it they started to try to understand it. And you might say that what was coming together in that moment was kind of like going to dance class. A lot of awkward movements. I don't understand what we're doing. I'm stepping on your toes. I'm colliding into others. Some of us are falling on our tush. It's really kind of a sight to see. But somehow in time, it starts to demonstrate a little bit of elegance. Shape, grace takes on a community is going to drive them toward one another. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. The word there in the original language, fellowship, is koinonia. It literally means common people, common life, a shared life. Beyond pleasantries, beyond superficialities, beyond just talking about, you know, upsets and football in Tuscaloosa. Beyond all that. Shared stories shared concerns shared lives shared experiences shared hardships shared struggles shared confessions shared disagreements shared arguments shared fights shared uh-oh shared reconciliation uh, look one reason we think jesus is wise because in john 17 in his high priestly prayer he doesn't finish praying until he says i pray that they might be as one <laughs> He knew it was coming. He knew he was putting who he was putting together. They will never get along. I'll pray for that. That fellowship comes together and grace shapes that community. Modern life, am I wrong? You're pulled in 14 different directions, and that's on a good day. That's on a slow day. That's just Tuesday. And as Metter said, the world that you and I have embraced, that we just think that's how it ought to be, is a life that does not prepare us for being lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community. And therefore, all of us have a choice. Do I want to live that way? I have all of these priorities that's having this effect on me. Is that what I want? Or do I want to make another choice? Do I want to choose another way? Do I want to choose the fellowship in which those things are fine? Everybody and his dog... Has written something about Barbie now. Everybody. And that's fine. Cultural phenomenon. Greta Gerwig is laughing all the way to the bank. And one person that did is a guy named Freddie Deboer. And I've I've shared some of the stuff that Freddie Deboer has written. And and he had a few things to say. Brilliant writer. Um, has no place for faith, no place for transcendence, but he speaks insightfully and honestly, and he says this. Um, none of us is enough. Getting from the I'm the thing. None of us is enough. I don't know you personally, but I can still say with great confidence that you are not enough. If you go through the life uncritically accepting the Instagram ideology that you can hashtag manifest everything you deserve because you practice hashtag self-care and are valid on a long enough time frame, you're going to end up alone and miserable and profoundly aware that the idea of total emotional self-sufficiency is a transparent lie. Human beings need other human beings. Do you believe that? Uh, dudes going on the men's retreat, uh, I'm going to steal my thunder a little bit right here. Uh, I would dare say that one thing that the Lord is out to um, displace in us is our preference for anonymity. It's not just a male thing, but it's commonly a male thing. Why? Because of that. Where are we going? We're coming into fellowship because we need it. They were devoted to one another truth is a person not an idea Benjamin Franklin famously said if we don't all hang together we will all hang separately <laughs> different context different sense same truth they were called into fellowship and they believed they needed to be together they need believe they needed to work out what does it mean to work out my salvation with fear and trembling we needed each other in order to do that it's a laboratory it's a gymnasium You are doing spiritual burpees by being in community with one another. Right? Right. Here's the great news, though. Thrown into fellowship. Guess what they were thrown toward in many respects when they would have fellowship? Two times, it says, and they committed themselves to the breaking of bread. My youngest son will love this. A spiritual discipline of food. (laughs) To have food. Twice, it says, they were committed to breaking of bread. What? Yeah. Because you know it. You've been to somebody's house, and they've gone to great lengths to prepare a meal, and the sort of things and the sort of conviviality, there's a great word, conviviality, there's your SAT word for the day. When you're thrown together, and you can just be cool with one another and let your hair on and enjoy other's company and savor the aromas and enjoy the stuff and, you know, praise the cook and delight in all of that, it's something. It's the table and the meal is more than a table and a meal. And they knew it. That's why we barbecue. Yes. Because <laughs> when you sit, and when you share a table, and you share a meal, you're sharing more than just the food. You're sharing yourself. There's something about the atmosphere in which I am disclosing to you things that I don't know if I can do over coffee or even sitting here in a church building. It's like there's something to it, and they committed themselves to it. Grace shapes a community to be thrown together of whatever stripes they are, but also to share in that food that holds them together. And look, around here, we, we love to point to that film that came out in 1987, Babette's Feast." right? This Lutheran um, fishing community in uh, you, know, the uh, 19th century, and they take in this woman who is fleeing a war, her name is Babette, and they take care of her and they nurture her, and they, they uh, treat her as one of their own, and she's a chef. She makes good stuff. And she lives with them for many years, and then she wins a lottery, and she goes, you know what, I would like to make you all a meal, a meal that you'll never forget. And so she goes to France, and she brings all this food back, and they in there, and the, the irony of it is, this is a community that loves God so much, but lives in austerity so much that they're a little bit suspicious, a little sus, of delight, because what does delight do? Well, it leads to dancing. No. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm married a Baptist, so um, <laughs> what does delight do? Delight leads to sin. So let's stay as far away from delight as we can. And the irony of it is she's making a meal. They're leaving now because they don't like dancing. They're, they're making a meal. They're, they're, she's making a meal for them that's going ha- to test their delights in ways that they never did. But when they show up for the meal, something has happened in the community that they're now at cross-purposes with one another. There's a little, they're division, they're hardened. And what happens in the course of the meal they are introduced to the idea that a delight is no less a gift from God as Jesus himself. And in the course and the time of the meal, everything that had turned them against one another and hardened them suddenly started to feel maybe a little smaller and the food had brought them together. Grace shapes a people in their fellowship, and in the use of food. But the most remarkable thing about the way grace shapes a fellowship here in this part, the part that probably will make you and me the most uneasy, is we'll just call it an uncommon but unextraordinary demonstration of love in the people. Like I said, uh, this people had Richmond, north of Richmond and everybody else in between, and they were thrown together. And it was clear from what happened that there were some who didn't know if they were going to have enough food to survive, and there were others who had extra. And it says there in verse 44, they all were one, they all believed were together, had all things in common, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Their common life caused them to make a change that they wouldn't otherwise do and nobody else was asking them to do. And it's because they believed something fundamental about what Jesus had done and what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. Which goes like this. I'll read it to you. And he made himself poor. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. If they had been reconciled to God by Jesus who emptied himself of everything but love, and if they had been reconciled to each other, sharing that reconciliation with God and with each other, then the only natural response was, if you're not sure you're not going to be able to eat tomorrow, and I have enough for at least two more meals, I'm going to share with you. It wasn't a policy. They didn't sort of, the leadership didn't sort of say, all right, let's do an asset analysis here. Let's do some actuarial tables, and we'll do some calculating, and then we'll, like that. It was just, this is what we do. You're, you have nothing. I have enough. I have an extra. So let's make sure that you're stabilized. Uh, we live equidistant between two communities called the Bruderhof, which is German for the House of Brethren. There's one in Morristown, Tennessee. There's one over at Durham with a bunch of Duke students, and they're people that all live in the same house. They share a common purse. They live together, they worship together. It's their thing. It's what they do. And it's a one manifestation of what it would look like for Acts 2 to affect a community. Am I suggesting that to us today? I am not. But you realize how much the church in modern times is segmented into a little, spe- each little spectrums of socioeconomic uh, demarcation. Go read Mere Christianity, chap- book 3, chapter 3, and and talk about what a Christian society looks like. It's why we have a diaconal fund in this church. You give over the operating budget to a diaconal fund, and if there's ever anybody in this church who comes up against a hard financial need, the diaconate starts to think about that and help, if we can. Tries to be good steward of everybody's money to help in that way. That's just a small picture of what it looks like to see Acts 2 at work in us. Richard Hayes is a New Testament professor at Duke Duke Divinity, in, in a book on New Testament ethics, he was really frank when he said this. Here's Richard Hayes. How can we order our economic practices in the church in such a way that we give testimony with power to the resurrection of Jesus? To ask that question in a serious and sustained way will require of us not only imaginative reflection, but also costly change. I have no four steps to incarnating whatever he's imagining here for you but I also can't say, you know, that was then, this is now, meh. The way grace shapes a community is to take stock and to be of assistance to help stabilize people in love, for love, because of the way in which the Lord has worked on our behalf in all circumstances, no matter your socioeconomic position. It's the way grace shapes a community, a common life. Last thing I'll say the only way that grace shapes a public life, which is first shaped by a common life, is because grace has shaped, finally, um, a vital life. This is the hardest part of the sermon to write. What, what I'm about to say, you might think, oh, you mean he shapes a religious life. Um, friends, uh, there's a title of a book by David Dark. says, uh, life's too short to say you're not religious, whether you show up on a Sunday morning or not. Everything we do has a religious framework to it, whether we agree on it or not. And I also could have said, well, this is all about our spiritual life, but what about, what is it that we do that doesn't have some sort of foundation in what we believe about the Spirit and what we believe about ourselves and whether we have a soul and whether anything lasts after death? Everything we do has a connection to that, whether we're conscious of it or not. And that's why I came up with the idea, let's talk about our vital life. And I I use that word because, you know, you med types in the room. You know what the vitals are. You know what? You come upon a person, they're on the ground. What do you do? ABC, airway, breathing, circulation. Those are your vitals, right? Those are the things that you have to verify the condition of. If any one of those is compromised, that body is on its way to demise. ABC, airway, breathing, circulation. So those are diagnostic moments, diagnostic moves that any medical type, any doctor, any nurse moves. They have to assess those things. They're diagnostic questions. Friends, it's the same thing with the church. Grace shapes our vital life in the same way that wisdom shapes a medical life. It always is asking certain diagnostic questions of us all. And in the same way that a doctor asks, is their airway obstructed? No. Are they breathing? No. Are they, is, there, is there circulation? No. Okay, then we have to attend to that. So here are the three questions that we ask in the way grace shapes the. Vital life. One, is there a sustained interest to grow in our knowledge and the grace of the Lord? Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they heard what the apostles had seen, they, they heard what the apostles tried to explain about what meant, what, the, what it meant what they had seen, and how that fits into our life and, and also how that challenges the way we think. That's that's learning, that's discovering, that's growing, that's learning. And we always have to ask ourselves, are we, is there a sustained interest in that? Look, um, there's 14 things, or fi- 14, I keep using that word, or 14 things that you were interested in this morning, like football scores and, you know, the weather, and our minds are taken in 15 ways. What does it mean to have a sustained attention to that one thing that is the one thing needed, Mary? is there a sustained interest in what we need to know about what it means to grow in grace and work out our salvation with fear and trembling the second question is is there any awe it says there in verse um, 44 or 43 and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles a lot of you've been sitting here for very patiently for many months now when's going to talk about signs and wonders in the spirit that's a great question we'll get to it not today Whatever was happening, though, awe, reverence, silence, wonder, stillness, gripped, captivated, something was at work. And the question is, does awe govern us in any way? There's a church father of the third century named Gregory of Nyssa. I read this this morning. He said, ideas create idols. Only wonder leads to knowing grace is not something you consider and then file it's experienced and that should manifest itself in wonder where we find our rest where we find our resolve where we find our conviction where we find our compassion is there any awe and right there next to awe is there any prayer and praise do we find ourselves ever desiring or feeling ourselves necessary to reach out to the one in whom we're supposed to find our greatest thing ever and that is communion with him or is it forced and stifled and something that we feel like is a box we check is there ever any reason to give celebration and praise for what God has done that's the way in which we diagnose the way in which grace might be shaping us because apart from that vital life being affected there is no common life Apart from superficiality, or there is no public life, when it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts, one is not simply glad because they make themselves glad, and one is not generous because they make themselves generous. It's because they've been affected, and that's their response. We've talked about the shape that grace takes in the community. What is the shape of grace? It is this belief that you are beloved that you are beloved and that you are forgiven and that you have his favor and that you have his future. And that is the shape that grace takes. And that's why I'll end in this way. There was a a cardinal during World War II named Emmanuel Celestin Suhard who said this, To be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. You could meditate on that for a very long time and come up with more than 14 different ideas by the time that you're done. What you just saw for those nine and a half minutes was a snapshot of a people whose life doesn't make sense if God doesn't exist. And if that could form the core idea for every person in this room and everyone that might be added to these ranks in any time in this family, so be it. It'll be by his kindness that he does so. As a family, we are aiming for oddness and peculiarness that our lives might not make sense if God did not exist. That's the shape of grace, both now and forevermore. Let's pray. We give you thanks that you have been kind and patient and persevering and showing yourself loving as you always have. And we would pray that you would soften us and convict us and allow us to know you through one another, with the help of your Spirit. So we praise you for what you've given us, for the history of this body, the faithfulness of many whose names we know and many whose names we do not. And we would ask now for help in the way ahead with the strength that you supply in Jesus' name. Amen.